All right, we are back. Let's talk about that American institution known as Mortsall. Twelve years ago on this program, we reported on yours truly taking a trip down to Los Angeles for an event billed as an 80th birthday party for Mort Saul. It was well worth making that trip. And for more information on it, we refer you back to our archives, circa June 2007, and our talk with Mark Evanier, the excellent producer of that fine blog website, News From Me. The lineup of comics for that event was pretty amazing. I did not realize until a couple weeks ago, when we heard it from the horse's mouth, that back in the day, Mort Saul had tried out in various venues with Jonathan Winters. The proprietors of various establishments heard both these guys and said, well, we think you're funny, but you're just too weird. Mort Saul in the early days also spotted a young comic doing a Mort Saul impression and was quite taken with him and took him under his wing. That comic's name was George Carlin. So it's not much of a surprise back in 2007 when Johnny Winters and George Carlin both turned out to pay their respects to Mort, along with uh, a who's who of, of comics. Jay Leno did a, a set on stage and at the end of it referred to Mort Saul as the greatest man in the world. Woody Allen sent in a video from New York, which was aired uh, for, the, for the audience in the auditorium. Mort told a story back back uh, at that event and, and repeated it, thankfully, uh, a couple of weeks ago, describing how, as a 19-year-old uh, comedy writer, Woody Allen had taken in a Mort Saul performance and was just knocked out, later telling Saul, you changed my life. Saul likes to report that many years later, he was in an event in New York where Woody Allen was sort of... Lur- it was an event hosted by Woody Allen, I think one of his movie openings, perhaps. He was sort of lurking in the back, trying to avoid being seen, because he was under a siege of legal troubles relating to Mia Farrow and their, their her adopted daughter, Soon Yi, who Woody eventually married, etc. Although Woody had a bodyguard assigned to keeping people away from him in his uh, in time of troubles... Mort Saul was able to break through by explaining their relationship, and when he got up to Woody, he said to him, geez, you know, you're, you're the guy that said, you know, I, I, I changed your life. Woody acknowledged it, but looked at him and said, can you change it back? Anyway, I, I want to talk about him a little bit, because he was just, you know, a, a towering figure, and, and, and still is. You know, Bill Maher's program owes a total debt to the work of, of, of Mort Saul. So does The Daily Show. So does Saturday Night Live. And uh, perhaps you, you, you know very little about him. We're going to try and fix that in the next few minutes. Because we think you should know more about a guy who once said, if we were the only person left on the planet, I would have to attack you. That's my job. Saul described the conversation he had with John F. Kennedy, who he wound up sort of going to work for back in the early 1960s. One of Kennedy's minions asked, uh, asked the boss, you know, who, who Saul was going after these days, to which JFK replied, everybody. And in what I have to notice is a bit of a curiosity. Uh, two of our previous guests in this program, Gerald Nachman and, and David Talbot, both uh, talk a great deal about Mort Saul in their books. Now, these, Gerald Nachman would have to do so, given his book was subtitled The Rebel Comedians of the 1950s and 1960s, but... 
Talbot also used Mortsall as a source for his book titled Brothers, The Hidden Story of the Kennedy Years. Let's see if we can't quote from both sources. All right, in his chapter on Mortsall, which is the first chapter of the book, seriously funny, Nachman had this to say, Of all the great groundbreaking comedians of that era, which officially began with Saul's inauspicious debut on Christmas night, 1953, before a friend-packed audience at a San Francisco folk singer haven called The Hungry Eye, nobody could have been more different from standard stand-up comics than Mort Saul. Even the revolutionary comedians who followed him, Lenny Bruce, Woody Allen, Dick Gregory, Phyllis Diller, Shelley Berman, Jonathan Winters, were cast in a familiar nightclub comic mold. All but Allen, a writer, had worked as actors or in radio or as entertainers of some sort. Other comedians labored to find the stage persona a voice, but Saul's actual persona was eccentric enough, and his voice was loud and clear. He was a force of nature, a whirlwind whose ideas defined him. Behind each joke lurked a sharply edged, cynical worldview. Everything about him was candid and cool, the antithesis of the slick comic. His casual campus wardrobe, the signature cardigan sweater, slacks, loafers, rumpled hair, open collar, rolled up shirt sleeves, his material, partly political but heavily laced with social commentary on fads, trends, and the American mindset in mid-century, his consistently high level of original wit, and to be sure, his controversial in-your-face delivery. Unlike the comics of his day, he didn't attempt to ingratiate himself with the audience, yet he connected with them on his own terms. Often he didn't finish sentences. He spoke in a kind of shorthand and didn't worry about building or finishing or making a logical segue. He didn't sing or dance. He was unlike any comedian who had ever been, except that he was stunningly funny. The mere idea of a stand-up comic talking about the real world was in itself revolutionary. Saul had attitude before it became trendy, and much later in the 1980s, before it passed itself off as a substitute for wit. Attitude comedy didn't stem from Steve Martin, David Letterman, or Dennis Miller. It started with Mort Saul, whose audacious position was that basically the fix was in. The life in the 1950s, and politics in particular, was a joke, and he was simply reporting what went on in Washington. That had also been Will Rogers' pose, but Saul was citing chapter and verse, and he was no benign, lovable, head-scratching cowboy philosopher. Saul, it seemed, had never met a man he liked. Or as he himself cracked, I never met a man I didn't like until I met Will Rogers. Gerald Nachman notes that the press's careless comparison of Mort Saul to Will Rogers or Bob Hope were way off the mark. When Rogers or Hope did political material, their jokes weren't meant to wound or to make anybody squirm. Saul's were, and did, at his little ch- chat, which is sort of like a very um, living room type event. You're sitting around, if you take the time, and I hope you will, the listener, to, to go down to Mill Valley, where, where Mort Saul still performs. You'll observe firsthand that he's telling stories that have been out there for years and years and years, and he still manages to make them work. He describes how he followed his girlfriend up to Berkeley, and... Uh, basically lived over in that city with her for several years, (laughs) expressed the view that things were simple then. All there was to worry about was the destiny of man. Back in 1955, the would-be comedian met a girl named Sue Bobbior. I was on a blind date. In his autobiography, Saul wrote, she was perfect. She was physically prepossessing. She was a leftist on the campus. She liked jazz 
and she was an atheist. I remarked to a friend of mine, I met a girl who was perfect. I can't seem to find a flaw. He said, I know you, and I have every confidence that you will. Nachman notes that when Saul began searching for a paying gig, Barbiar suggested he'd the hungry eye. It's at North Beach, she said, which is the Bohemian area, which means a lot of Jewish people acting like Italians. In 1955, he would cut Mort Saul at Sunset, which is cited as the first stand-up comedy album. Nachman notes that the opening 20 minutes contains nary a political joke. The album, recorded live at Carmel, California's Sunset Auditorium, is tightly packed time capsule of mid-50s lore. Saul jabbers away about hi-fis and speakers so large that one guy had to move into the garage and use his house as the speaker. This reminds me that at his talk a couple weeks ago, Mort Saul threw out names like Estes Kefauver, which, which no longer resonate with the public. Anyway, to make a long story longer, Herb Cain, the legendary columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle, took note of Mort Saul working at the Hungry Eye and said he didn't know where he came from, but he was glad he was here and... Before you know it, he was playing to packed houses. Saul acquired a reputation of being the darling of the intellectuals, an image he disdained. It was absurd, he said. I was barely a C student. Only in show business would I be considered an intellectual, which I am by default. I quote intellectuals. Back in the 1960s, you did see Mort Saul on television. Ed Sullivan had him on numerous times, but he made TV people nervous. I think I'm finding it a little bit hard to capture how big a name Mort Saul was in like the early 60s, but he was one of the co-hosts of the Academy Awards presentation in 1959. And in 1960, he got a call that began, this is Ambassador Joseph Kennedy. I understand that you're preeminent in the field of political humor. I want you to write some things for Johnny. Saul reportedly replied, well, I'll be happy to, but but understand I don't endorse candidates. To which... Joe Kennedy reportedly replied, I'm not interested in who you endorse. I want you to do this. Flattered and enamored of JFK, he agreed. Anyway, Joe Kennedy and the rest of the Klan uh, and the Democrats in general didn't really realize when they brought Mort Saul on to help write some jokes and punch up JFK's material that he wasn't going to be a loyalist. The LA Times critic said about Saul, he really is the loyal opposition. He's like Brando in The Wild One when somebody asks him, what are you rebelling against? And Brando says, what have you got? So Marshall was pretty happy with uh, JFK in the White House. He thought he was a very bright guy, a a good guy, and a man who ought to be president. But uh, he kept doing Kennedy jokes. Noted uh, Gerald Nachman, once he began doing more lethal jokes, like one about JFK throwing out his back, carrying girls upstairs at the White House, Joseph Kennedy called Enrico Banducci and club owners with mob ties who were part of the elder Kennedy's extended family, and reportedly asked Bobby Kennedy to have the IRS close down the hungry eye. Enrico Banducci was stunned to come to work one day and find this club's doors padlocked by the IRS for unpaid withholding taxes. But notes Nachman, all that aside, Saul was smitten by Kennedy, whom he saw as a kindred spirit and wit. And it would turn out that the JFK assassination would mark... (laughs) A, an utter disaster for the career of Mort Saul. The comedian embarked on a crusade to find out what happened to the 35th president. He thought the Warren report was a joke. He actually used it in his act, reading aloud from it, pointing out how ridiculous it was. Unfortunately, this was not a good career move as audiences were not as interested in this form of comedy as they might have been. 
Saul's income plunged in the 1960s from $400,000 a year, which was good money back then, to 19000 during his Warren Report assaults. And remarkably, very remarkably, as Jim Garrison's investigation into what happened to JFK heated up, Mort Saul traveled down to New Orleans and became basically an assistant investigator in the case. None of that ended very well. But it's worth noting that in the 1970s, Mort Saul engineered a partial comeback, aided, of course, by Nixon's presidency and Watergate. His partial return from the dead was part of a resurgence of comedy then astir in the land. Following a humor drought that saw the popularity of elephant jokes, grape jokes, and Polish jokes in the mid-1970s, one one agent called the Gomer Pyle era of comedy, a few edgy new comics came along. Robert Klein, George Carlin, Lily Tomlin, Cheech and Chong, David Fry, and Richard Pryor. In the mid-70s, the media began paying attention to him again, and by 1980, after a long estrangement, Saul and Enrico Banducci were back on friendly terms when Saul opened a new North Beach club. That didn't last long, but he was working again and <laughs> continues to this day. David Talbot notes in his book, Brothers, that while Garrison was trying to investigate what happened to JFK, Bobby Kennedy was publicly taking the position that, well, he supports the Warren Commission. He certainly did not get behind what Garrison was doing down in New Orleans. And uh, Mort Saul was part of the back channel that was going on between the Garrison camp and the Kennedy camp. According to Mort Saul, the message that came back from Bobby Kennedy was always the same. I must wait until I reach the White House. Then I will get the guys who killed Jack. Garrison, on the other hand, told Mort Saul that Bobby Kennedy was not going to live long enough to win the nomination. Garrison sent word back to Kennedy that his only chance was to speak out about the conspiracy that killed his brother, which might make his enemies think twice about moving against him. That advice was not well received by Bobby's camp, according to Saul. Telling the story to David Talbot, Mort Saul shook his head and said, I don't think he'd be under that everlasting flame if he listened to us. Anyway, I plan to attend uh, more of his events in the future simply because he's a man worth listening to. And, uh, dear listener, I would suggest that if any of you have any inclination to travel down to the Mill Valley area, you, you consider doing likewise. All right, in the dozen or so minutes we have left, let us talk of other things, like the Eighth Amendment's Excessive Fines Clause. That was cited last week when the Supreme Court ruled unanimously that the Constitution's prohibition on excessive fines applies to state and local governments, limiting their ability to impose financial penalties and seize property. The decision delighted critics of civil asset forfeiture, who welcomed it as a new weapon in their war against what's been labeled as policing for profit. The practice of seizing cash, cars, and other property from those convicted or even suspected of committing a crime. Groups as diverse as the American Civil Liberties Union and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce warned the Supreme Court of abuses. With the Chamber touting a national study that <clears throat> found that 60% of the 1,400 municipal and county agencies surveyed relied on forfeiture profits as a necessary part of their budgets. The case at the court involved Tyson Timms, an Indiana man who had his $42,000 Land Rover SUV seized after his arrest for selling a couple hundred dollars worth of heroin. Scott Bullock, the president and general counsel of the Institute for Justice, which represented Tim, said, This is not just an ominous trend. It is a dangerous one. 
Increasingly, our justice system has come to rely on fines, fees, and forfeitures to fund law enforcement agencies rather than having to answer to elected officials for their budgets. I'd heard legends of, of like yachts being being seized because somebody found a marijuana seed on board as part of a zero tolerance policy, but I'd need to snopes that one before I, you know, certify that it really happened. But that's the sort of thing that can happen. Well, perhaps not so much now. And speaking of marijuana, or more specifically CBD, the industry, CBD industry, is experiencing a boom, and it's also leading to assertions that it may be snake oil. In a briefing in the week done earlier this month, it was noted that cannabidiol, or CBD, is a compound in cannabis sativa that doesn't get you high. THC is the psychoactive component that makes people euphoric. CBD has exploded in popularity over the past year because it's been purported to do just about everything. Relieve pain, reduce anxiety and stress, treat inflammation, insomnia, headaches, hangovers, nausea, skin disorders, joint pain, muscle spasms, etc. And I there's a loophole in the law that allows, it allows that if you make this from hemp, which contains much smaller amounts of the, these compounds, that you can then, uh, you know, find it in your health food store. Of course, you know, something's weird about this whole phenomenon when the Republican Party starts to embrace hemp. <laughs> supposedly, state, supposedly Mitch McConnell is leading the charge uh, in the Republican Party to normalize hemp. Kentucky used to have a robust hemp sector, and it now seeks to profit from CBD boom times. The purported benefits of CBD are still rather murky. There have not been any good studies to see really what it seems effective at, at combating. I was given some uh, some time back to treat uh, some soreness in my knees. I applied it to my knees. I didn't wasn't sure the soreness was any better. Now, I don't have too many. I don't have much doubt that uh, they're going to find some uses for these compounds and and for a lot of the uh, cannabinoids in the future. All I can say for now, don't believe everything you read. And uh, The Guardian has reported on a rather startling study that took place here in California on pesticides in our urine, which apparently uh, is pretty easy to find. They did a study on organic food which presumably has uh, much lower concentrations of pesticides. It shouldn't have any, but uh, who knows. To quote from The Guardian, when Andrea Febris, mother of two, signed up for a study evaluating whether organic diet could make a difference in the amount of pesticides found in her body, she didn't know what researchers would find. But her family and three others across the country that participated would discover that after only six days on an organic diet, every single person would see significant drops in those pesticides. I think more study needs to be done in this area, but wow, that's a potential wake-up call. Surprised to see the article says that of 14 chemicals tested for, every single member of every family had detectable levels, which just sounds criminal on the face of it. After switching to an organic diet, these levels dropped dramatically. Levels across all pesticides dropped by more than half on average. Detectable levels of the pesticide malathion... <laughs> I would hate to think that, you know, we're peeing out malathion. A probable human carcinogen decreased 95%. This is something that uh, I intend to follow rather closely as more data comes in. And speaking of healthy eating, I have to laugh at a piece I saved from USA Today, that fine publication from January 24th. 
and I think I should probably quote from this as a public service type announcement. The article was titled, A Taste of Healthful Fast Food. Article by Rasha Ali noted that since everyone started their healthful New Year's resolutions, they're guessing that the cravings are kicking in and the old fast food stomping grounds are starting to look a little more attractive. Article notes that, well, you can still set foot in or drive through a Chick-fil-A, a McDonald's, another fast food restaurant, and, you know, keep your New Year's resolution at the same time. Fast food and fast casual chains do have low-calorie and low-fat options. To cite a few, at Panera, you can get the lentil quinoa broth bowl with chicken, 380 calories, 8 grams of fat. At Chipotle, you can get a steak burrito with fajita vegetables, black beans, and fresh tomato for 325 calories, 7.5 grams of fat. Chick-fil-A has grilled nuggets of chicken, 140 calories, 3.5 grams of fat. At Starbucks, you can find a spinach, feta, and cage-free egg white breakfast wrap for 290 calories, 10 grams of fat. Taco Bell can serve you up a steak fresco soft taco, 150 calories, 4 grams of fat. And even at McDonald's, if you get the artisan grilled chicken sandwich, it's only 380 calories, 6 grams of fat. Now, we're not endorsing here at Radio Parallax that you go eat at any of these establishments. But it's nice to know that these uh, widely available restaurants do have some rather more healthy options for you. All right. In legal matters, we reported a few weeks back about uh, the weasels in San Rafael, California who will make public parking available to you for free on the weekends, but then patrol (laughs) the uh, parking structure looking for fix-it tickets. I think it's just revenue-generating, pure and simple. But how about this one? You better watch out in the city of San Carlos, because according to a letter to Mr. Roadshow, a woman in Palo Alto wrote to say that she got a ticket for a peeling license plate in San Carlos, And the ticket cost $1,105. The writer, like me, had to go to the DMV to get the fix-it ticket signed off on. Then they had to go to the traffic office in Redwood City, in this case, where she paid $25 to have the $1,105 waived. The woman who helped her told her she was lucky because not every ticket is marked that you can fix it. If that had been the case, she would have had to go to court to fight it. The officer that cited this woman said that uh, the police have devices they can point at plates and get a read. When the plates are peeling and they cannot get a read, well, now you're guilty of an offense. And no, we don't know whether this new ruling on Eighth Amendment uh, forfeitures and seizures would have any uh, role to play here. I don't think so. And we have time for one more item. I don't know whether to go with another legal item, whether a lake should get legal rights like a person, in this case Lake Erie, or... A new Chinese sci-fi spectacular. What do you think, Mr. McMillan? Chinese sci-fi spectacular. All right, we'll talk about Lake Erie next week. Here we go. According to a piece in New Scientist magazine, there's a new movie out made in China titled The Wandering Earth, directed by Front Guo. The premise is the sun is dying. It's about to explode. We need to drive the Earth out of the solar system. So in the movie, the world comes together for a project called The Wandering Earth, which, of course, gives the film its name. It's the first big-budget sci-fi film adapted from a short story of the same author by author Shishun Liu. 
It's a $50 million film. It's brought in already more than $400 million in China since release on February 5th. As the story begins, humanity is freezing. They live in underground bunkers, and generations have never seen sky, mountains, or oceans. And to avoid being destroyed by the sun when it explodes, the United Earth government has built 10,000 propulsion engines using rockets from mountains as fuel to slowly push the Earth out of its orbit. Part of the plan is to use Jupiter's massive gravity to slingshot it out of the solar system. Uh, They decide this movie, the, the only way out of here is to move the Earth. But as they're approaching Jupiter, a sudden spike in Jupiter's gravity, which, which the magazine notes uh, is not possible, pulls one side of the Earth a lot harder than the other, creating terrible earthquakes. Most of the thrusters are knocked out, dooming the Earth to crash into Jupiter. Well, it sounds like quite a novelty. I might want to try and take this one in at some point if it, uh, if it becomes available. But I do have a sneaking suspicion it may be a bit like Battlefield Earth, a movie that in parts is so bad you just find it extra entertaining. That about does it for today's show. I hope on next week's program we can talk about travel, some of the pitfalls of traveling, etc. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You have been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. I'll see you next week. And maybe on, on one of these Thursdays, down at Throckmorton's in Mill Valley. For that is where you shall find that comedy legend, Mr. Mort Saul. Is a hazy shade.